Welcome to the Lunch Break Bible Study. Today we are continuing with the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 9. Last week we covered verses 2 through 10, something, an event that is normally referred to as the Transfiguration. Jesus goes up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and we talked about uh, the, the cloud up on the mountain associated with the glory of God. We talked about Moses and Elijah there and their relationship to Jesus as ones who go to a mountain and hear the word of God given to them directly, hear the voice of God telling them their mission and what they should do. Um, Peter, James, and John go with Jesus, and they too, like Moses and Elijah, have that mountaintop experience. The glory of God is revealed with Jesus there, and they hear the voice of God saying what their mission is, and their mission is to listen to Jesus and to do as he says, which is, as Jesus said, to take up their cross and follow him. So then they depart from the mountain. Jesus says, it's time for us to go. Uh, they depart from the mountain, and on their way down, they ask, this is chapter 9, verse 11 in Mark's gospel, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? So you remember Elijah from the scene up on the mountain, Elijah, the Old Testament prophet who had never actually died. The Lord had come and taken him up into heaven in that uh, fiery chariot, if, you're, if you remember, in the presence of his successor prophet, Elisha. And they obviously believe that whatever just happened up on this mountain with Elijah doesn't satisfy what the teachers of the law, what the religious authorities of the day had been talking about. So they ask Jesus, why do the teachers say that Elijah must come first? Now Jesus replies and he says, they're right, that Elijah does come first and that he restores all things. So I wanted to take a second here before we get on into the second half of verse 12 in Mark chapter 9. I want to take a second and ask about this question. What does it mean that Elijah does come first and that he restores all things? Now certainly who is the Elijah figure that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about John the baptizer, the one who dresses like Elijah, the one who is the voice crying in the wilderness, the one who wears the, the hair shirt and the, and the belt around his waist like Elijah did. So it's clear from the descriptions of John the baptizer and from what comes next that John the baptizer is the Elijah figure that had been foretold by the prophets. But we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to restore all things that Jesus says? So once again, we have to return to the voice of the prophets and try to decipher what Jesus means by this. And if you go to the prophet Amos in the Old Testament, Amos chapter 8, verse 11, God is announcing his judgment against the nation of Israel, his judgment against uh, those who would not be the people that God has adopted them to be. Amos chapter 8, verse 11, he says that there is coming judgment for you, Israel. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, which is what we think of when we think of famine, or a thirst for water, but rather a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And Amos's words had come true. His prophecy had come true. The Lord had cut off the voice of the prophets for some 400 plus years up until the time of John. So that's the first part of this puzzle, is that what is John doing? And he is 
ending the famine of the word of the Lord. And you can see that the ministry of Elijah matches up quite well with this idea. Because if you look at 1 Kings chapter 18, there is a famine in the land, and it's been going on for quite some time. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah there on Mount Carmel, after he brings judgment onto the prophets of Baal, who had been serving Baal in the nation of Israel, um, Elijah then says, look and see what's coming. And the, the rains, which had not fallen on Israel for, for years, under Elijah's prophecy, those rains come back. And, and so when you put these, things, these two things together, the, that there is a famine of the word of the Lord in Israel, and Elijah is the one who ends famines, you can see what Jesus means by this. Elijah does come first, and he restores all things. That famine of the word of the Lord has been ended by John the baptizer. He is the first prophet in Israel in generations. But then Jesus turns and asks his disciples another question. He says, why is it written then that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Because this is something that Jesus is sort of unique in the time period that he is preaching and teaching because the idea that the Son of Man would suffer, that the Son of God, that the Messiah, the Anointed One, would suffer for the sake of Israel rather than be victorious and rescue Israel in the way they're kind of expecting him to, this is something that's unique to Jesus. He's the only one who teaches this. He's the only one who connects for example, Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant prophecies, he's the only one who connects that to the Messiah of Israel. And in verse 13, Jesus tells his disciples, I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as is written about him. And so with Jesus showing that he understands the scriptures better than the teachers of the law do, the blindness of those teachers is revealed again. Jesus asks the questions the disciples have never even considered. Why is it the Son of Man must suffer? The teachers of the law are like, remember, that blind man who had that one encounter with Jesus and did not see clearly. He says, if you remember, um, I see the people and they're like trees walking around. The things that they were seeing didn't make sense to him. They were not uh, coherent to reality for him. The teachers of the law are the same way. They see Jesus, but they do not understand. So this one passage about the blind man who sees but doesn't see and then encounters Jesus again and then sees clearly, this has become so central to all the things that we've seen in Mark's gospel that this one sort of head-scratching curiosity moment, something that people generally, we, we don't know what to do with this because we don't see the whole picture of Mark's gospel, is this man is sort of emblematic of all people who encounter Jesus, even today, even today, people who encounter Jesus and don't understand really who he is because they don't understand him as the resurrected Lord. They have to have that kind of encounter with Jesus, the Jesus as the one who is the victor over sin and death and Satan. That's what you have to have in order to understand Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they are kind of forever stuck in that halfway place, having seen Jesus but never understanding him. So now we get into verse 14, and we have another really interesting text. It's one of these things where 
the disciples are not able to do something that they have done before and should be able to do. It's very puzzling, and I'm going to walk you through it the way I sort of walk through it and makes sense to me. Now, you may read other Bible teachers and you may read other books that, that disagree with this, uh, this take on it, and that's fine, um, because I, I, don't, I don't really know how many people kind of go the way I go on this, but uh, just to give you some food for thought, in chapter 9, verse 14, Jesus, Peter, James, and John come to the other disciples. Remember, because it was just Peter, James, and John that went up on the mountain. So they come to the other disciples, and they see a large crowd around them, and also the teachers of the law were arguing with the disciples. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were excited. They, they just rushed toward him because probably they, were, they had come to the disciples because they were really looking for Jesus. And they rushed toward him, and they greeted him. They were, uh, uh, in your translation in the NIV, they were overwhelmed with wonder. Or, or we might say, in the words of Mark's gospel, they had a fear of the Lord in the good and positive sense, right? They were uh, awestruck and reverent toward him. But they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet Jesus. Jesus asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Now, we're not sure who he asks this question to. We're not sure if he's asking his disciples why they're arguing with the teachers, or he's asking the teachers why they're arguing with the disciples. We don't know that. But neither of those, neither the teachers nor the disciples, give Jesus his answer. The answer comes from a man in the crowd. He says, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth. He becomes stiff, right? And he says, I, I brought my son to your disciples so to drive the spirit out, and they couldn't. And they couldn't. Then Jesus says something puzzling, and we have to, who is he talking to? He says, oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So who is Jesus referring to as the unbelieving generation there? Is it his disciples who do not have the faith to drive the demon out? Is it the teachers of the law who do not believe that the disciples or Jesus can actually drive out this demon? Who is the unbelieving generation that Jesus is so frustrated with right now? There is one other option. Let's keep reading. So they brought the boy to Jesus, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a, uh, into a convulsion, into a, a fit or a seizure or something like that. But it's important to note that this is not some disease of the flesh like epilepsy, right? Epilepsy doesn't panic at the sight of Jesus. But as soon as this demon became aware of Christ, it began to torment the boy, which is something that we've seen with demons as they, uh, as they come into contact with Jesus, they uh, start doing all the damage they possibly can. So the boy falls to the ground, and he rolls around, and, he's, and his mouth is foaming, uh, and he's uh, just being tormented by this devil. So verse 21, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, the man answered, it is, it's often even thrown him into fires or water trying to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So one of the things, I want to be careful here because you don't want to take the actual text itself and then make it into a parable. So that this is this and that is that and, and you lose sort of the, the reality of what's actually happening here. But I think in Mark's gospel, we can understand some events and some people as not being parables, you know, things that they are things that actually happened, but they help us to get sort of a picture of the greater reality that's going on. 
If you look at this boy being tormented, being oppressed, you can see that maybe his struggle is representative of the struggle that all of Israel, the nation of Israel, had from the very beginning. They had, since their infancy as a nation, they had been in bondage of a different kind than the Egyptian bondage. They had suffered much under the persecution of men and the devil. How many times had this people been led to their destruction, either by water, right, if you remember when Moses was a baby, and Pharaoh had ordered all the male children of Israel to be thrown into the Nile River, right? Or they had been led to their destruction by fire. And you can think in this case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego there as they were led to the fiery furnace because they refused to worship uh, the way that the Babylonians insisted they worship idols. How many times had God rescued them? It's Jesus who has come at last to set this people free once and for all. So this young man who is having these, uh, who is being oppressed by this demon, this young man, his struggle is representative of the oppression of the entire nation of God's people from its infancy as a nation. So verse 23, Jesus says, if you can, right? He asks, if you can, he says, everything is possible for him who believes. Now, it's this comment by Jesus that helps us to understand who he was referring to at the beginning of the exchange. Jesus, remember, Jesus says, um, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? See, it's the boy's father who does not believe, who lacks the faith that Jesus is who he claims to be. It's not a problem with the disciples, and it's not a problem with the teachers of the law, although they both have their issues. In this exchange, it's Jesus addressing the father as a part of the unbelieving generation. But wait a minute. Didn't the father show faith when he came to Jesus in the first place? Isn't that a sign of his belief in Christ? Verse 24, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, he says, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And here, as is so many times else in Mark's gospel, the man is caught in that seeing and not seeing problem of the blind man. He sees and believes, but does not fully understand what is given. He knows that there is something he yet lacks, and he begs Jesus at this point, Help me overcome my unbelief. Give me what it is I need to believe in you. Now, verse 25, Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, right? So people are already gathered. Uh, they see this big commotion happening, and more people see what's happening, and they kind of running to the scene. He rebuked the evil spirit. He says, you deaf and mute spirit. He says, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And then verse 26, the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. And that's the second time Jesus has cast out demons, and they don't go quietly. The first one ever he cast out was in the synagogue, very, very early in Mark's gospel. And we talked about how maybe it's not a coincidence. Maybe it's not a coincidence that we see the great evils we have witnessed in the last hundred years. That Satan is shaking the world and, and convulsing us violently and shrieking as he is being cast out into the outer darkness. Verse 26 continues, the boy, he looks like he's dead. People look at him and they think he has he's a dead body. They say he's dead. Verse 27, though, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. So you can imagine sort of the what happens to the father when he sees this. What happens to the boy's father? He looks down and the, the boy is struck and he lies there like a, like a dead body. And the very thing that he was trying to avoid appears to happen. 
He was bringing him to Jesus because the demon was trying to kill the kid by casting him into fire and water. He brings him to Jesus. Jesus casts out the demon. And you can imagine sort of the, the roller coaster of emotions that he's going through because as soon as the demon leaves, the boy looks like he's, like he's dead. But Jesus shows that when he lifts the boy up, that those who had seen the boy didn't really understand what they had seen. Jesus knows the victory behind what appears to be a tragedy. And we have here a bit of foreshadowing of what is to come. Jesus will be dead and laid in a tomb, and everyone who sees it will not understand the victory that Jesus has won over Satan, has won over death. It's only after Jesus is raised from the dead that people will fully see. So again, the lesson of the blind man, the most puzzling thing in all of Mark's gospel, becomes the central message that people who saw Jesus did not understand. It's only after the second encounter, after the resurrection, do we see him clearly and with understanding. And then in verse 28, after Jesus had gone indoors, all right, so they dismiss the crowd, the, the crowd goes away, uh, he takes his disciples and they go into a house. His disciples ask him, you know, we tried to drive that demon out. So that's a really good question. Why can't we drive him out? We've done this before. Jesus says this kind of demon, I suppose, only comes out through prayer. And then we have to ask, what prayer? Who prayed? Who prayed in this text? It wasn't the disciples. It certainly wasn't the teachers of the law. They were just arguing. And it wasn't Jesus. Jesus didn't pray at all. He just commanded the demon to come out. The only prayer in this passage came from the boy's father. The prayer of the boy's father asking for faith in the one who can do all things. The boy's father recognized the real problem, that not only does Jesus have the power to cast out this demon, but only through Jesus can that power be recognized and trusted. Only through Jesus can faith come. The boy's father prayed, prayed to Jesus for faith. And this kind of demon cannot stay in this world when people go to God in faith and in trust. This kind of demon cannot torment God's people when we have faith and trust in Jesus. Satan cannot stand up to faith. Satan cannot stand up to faith. And that's where we're going to end today. Mark chapter 9, we'll finish there with verse 29, and verse 30 starts another, another little section of the story. So we're going to start with that next time. Today's shout out uh, got a five-star review on iTunes. One of the wonderful things that, uh, that my podcast uh, host does for me is it gives me some basic information about the people who listen and, and when they listen and how they listen. Uh, one of the things I found out is that half of you are listening to me on iTunes, or, well, or I guess uh, Apple Podcasts now. I'm not sure how, I'm not an Apple user, so I'm not sure how it all works. But I do know that uh, if you are listening to me on on iTunes, if you give me a five-star rating, that really helps people find the podcast. Um, this shout-out goes to somebody who labeled their review as, uh, they titled it Solid, which, <laughs> thanks. Um, says, went looking for this very thing, and this was the only podcast I found like it. I appreciate the approach and execution, as there is a need for Bible study like this that is accessible to all more than just once or twice a week. Well, I get it as often as I can. Um, I know it's a lot of work and also encourage you to stick to the one-a-week goal to help people keep people coming back because this type of study is valuable. Thanks again. Well, th that's by a fella, uh, well, I say a fella, could be a girl. Um, that's by a user named Tower Defense. Um, so I really appreciate the kind words and I wish I had more time to get these things out quicker. But I'm glad that you like it. And the reason, the whole reason I'm doing this podcast is because 
this is the kind of thing I wanted to see. I wanted to hear. I'm I'm a pastor. I I you know preach weekly. Um, <laughs> that's a that's a nice that's a nice pun. I preach weekly as in uh, every week, and then weekly as in not very strong. Uh, <laughs> so take that as you will. Um, I I preach weekly, and I wanted something that was a relatable. Uh, look at different parts of the Bible uh, in the context of the greater book itself. And um, there are commentaries and there are books out there, but nothing really that that I particularly enjoyed. I wanted something that I could listen to, but same thing with Tower Defense. I never found anything that I really liked listening to, didn't approach the book the way I would want it approached to help me develop sermons or preaching or, or teaching on these texts. So that's why I started this podcast, is because this is the kind of thing I wanted and nobody else was making it, none that I found. So I'm glad you like it, Tower Defense. I appreciate that. Um, Five-star reviews on on iTunes are wonderful. Uh, If you can find me on Facebook, like and share the page. I post um, every time I get a new update. I I post that to Facebook. If you like and share that, that's very helpful for me. Uh, it will help your friends find the podcast, and maybe they'll like it too. But I really appreciate all the uh, uh, all the support and all the people that have, have uh, been faithfully listening whenever I can be bothered to get a new episode out. Um, but thanks again, Tower Defense. I really appreciate your, your input. And, uh, and this is Pastor Frank again from the Lunch Break Bible Study, and I hope you all have a blessed day.